0: We're going down to the river. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Simon Peter writes these words. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We didn't bring to you fables that other people were talking about. We were eyewitnesses. Of his majesty. And I've showed up today with the same words of Simon Peter. I didn't come to tell you about a God somebody else told me about. I've showed up to tell you that I'm an eyewitness of his majesty. Come on, has anybody seen God do something in your life? Has anybody witnessed his majesty? So I'm going to preach to you today on this topic. A glimpse of his majesty. A glimpse of his majesty. Just a glimpse. Just a glimpse. God, we need your anointing today. Let your power fill this house as it already has. Let it continue to flow, God. Let your anointing saturate. Let it fill every individual today with so much hope that they realize that we're in the presence of a majestic king. I pray for every individual in the name that's above every other name. We ask it to be done. Somebody shout in Jesus' name. Amen. If you love the Lord, give him a hand clap of praise, and you may be seated this morning. In Max Lakeda's book, God Came Near, he tells a story of a man that for 51 years was blind. His world was as black, was a black hall of sounds and smells as he felt his way through five decades of darkness. Until one day. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation on a man by the name of Bob Edens. And Bob, for the first time, was able to see. He found it overwhelming, and this is what he said. He said, "I I would never have dreamed that yellow is yellow. He said, I don't have the words. I'm just amazed by yellow. However, red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. He said, I can see the shape of the moon, and I, I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail, and of course, sunrises and sunsets. And at night, I look at the stars in the sky, the flashing light. You can never know how wonderful everything is until you was once blind, but now you can see. And he's right. Those of us who have lived a lifetime with vision can't really know how wonderful it is to be able to see. Or can we? But Bob Edens isn't the only one who has spent a lifetime near something without really seeing it. If we can be honest, on this Sunday morning, many suffer from from some form of blindness. Think about it. We can live next to something for a lifetime. But unless we take time to focus on it and see it, it doesn't really become a part of our life. Just because one has witnessed a thousand rainbows doesn't mean he's seen the grandeur of one. One can live near a garden and fail to focus on the splendor of the flower. And a person can can be all that morals and religion calls them to be and still never see the author of life. We can miss His majesty, allowing amazing grace to become mundane grace. And if we miss His majestic power, then we belittle His profound attributes. I heard one minister say this, I am a fourth generation spirit-filled Christian. Three generations deep in the ministry. But I must be honest with you, ironically, as a minister, I was suffering from the same hunger pangs as the people who had never met Jesus before. He said, I no longer looked for a glimpse of his majesty. He went on to say, you can know all about the presidents, royalties and celebrities. You can know their eating habits, their address, their marital status. But knowing about them doesn't imply that you actually know them. Listen, I've watched a thousand YouTube videos of Michael Jordan playing basketball. I've tried to imitate his moves. But that still doesn't mean that I actually know Michael Jordan. And in this information age with tidbits of gossip passed from one mouth to uh, another, from paper to paper, from person to person, it's possible to traffic in facts about someone, someone without knowing them personally. And for too long, the church has been only conversant in the things of God, where we have churches filled with people who can win Bible trivia contests, but who don't really know who he is. And I'm afraid that some of us have been sidetracked or entangled by everything from prosperity to poverty. And we've become such an ingrown society of the self-righteous that our desires and our wants And those of the Holy Spirit are two different matters. We don't want what he wants or think like he thinks or see what he sees. And if we're not careful, we can become so interested in developing the cult of the comfortable that we forget about the thousands of discontented, wounded, and dying people who pass by our comfortable church every day. Because we can talk about God. And we can preach about God. But if we know God, then we know the mission of God and the heart of God and the values of God. And once we really get a glimpse of his majesty, we will want everyone else to see what we see and know what we know, that there's no sinner he can't save, that he loves everybody. He loves every ethnicity. He loves everybody from every walk of life. We'll see what he sees and know what he knows. And I may ask you a question. Have we caught a glimpse of his majesty? Do we really want to know who he is? I read another article just this week of a couple who lives in another country where if you're caught sharing the gospel, you'll be thrown into jail, tortured, possibly put to death for being a Christian. Yet he and his wife daily, diligently, daily and diligently are seeking to share the gospel with others because they want to share with people the blessings of the majesty of God. They care more about the majesty of God than they do their own survival. And each morning when this husband and wife part ways, they acknowledge that we may not see each other again. It might be the last time. Because to them, the scripture to live in, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, is a reality. It's not just some formal scripture on the pages of the Bible. It means something to them, and each day they prayerfully pursue the spirit of Jesus' direction in order to show the lost the way of salvation. The author of the article writes this. He says this. He says when I say when I say they prayerfully. He says, I mean, they prayerfully pray. They and their fellow Christians spend a minimum of four hours a day in prayer and in the word of God. And they fast for extended times before they go out seeking souls. Why? They don't do this just because Scripture says do it. They do it because they have to. You see, spiritual strongholds do not give way and conversations don't happen unless they tap into the power of the Holy Spirit daily. They don't just read the words of Ephesians 6. They actually put on the armor of God and then they pray and they pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit because they want to share the gospel boldly with people. It's more than just hearing about majesty. It's actually having an encounter with a majestic God that wants to help them deliver a gospel to a lost and dying world plus one wrong move and a whole network of believers could be exposed so they depend on the holy spirit to specifically lead them to people that the spirit has already prepared they have no choice but to witness his majesty on a daily basis and to be spirit-led all these things were wonderful and encouraging this is what the author says they were also convicting to read but then this couple tells a disturbing story Several years ago, this man and his wife were given the opportunity to move back to the States. Back to the United States of America. The land of the free and the home of the brave. However, after living here for some time, the wife pleaded with her husband and said, can we go back to the country we're from? Her husband said, why? And this is what she said. She said, it's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here. And the Christians in America are sound asleep. And this is what she said. She said, I feel like I'm falling asleep. So please, can we go back? And they did. They went back to a country where they can be killed for sharing the gospel because it was more dangerous to be in a free country where people are sleeping on the majestic power of God. We've got to wake up the river on a Sunday morning. We've got to open our eyes. We can't just go through the routine of religion. We've got to see his majestic power. We've got to know him. We've got to see souls added to the kingdom. I want a glimpse of his majesty. I want a glimpse. Where is our urgency this morning? Where is an urgency to get a glimpse of His majesty, to witness an outpouring of His presence? Where are the tears over the perishing? Where is the groanings that gives birth to revival? Where is the fasting and prevailing intercession for those we love and those we live near and those we work with, not to mention the unreached of the world who have no meaningful gospel witness among them? Where are those that say we want to give you a glimpse of the majesty of God? Because being asleep is dangerous. Because according to Jesus, in his parable of the ten virgins, spiritual sleepiness is a very, very dangerous condition. Because if you're asleep, that means you're running out of oil. And if you're running out of oil, the bridegroom's going to come back. And you're not going to be able to make it because there's not enough oil in the vessel. So today I'm telling the majestic king, I'm waking up and I'm getting as much oil as I can get. I'm like the psalmist. I'm going to leave here and my cup is going to be overflowing. And God, what does it mean when it overflows? That other people are going to be changed and touched by the majestic power of God. I want to overflow with his power. And we've got to cultivate the resolve that led Charles Spurgeon to say these words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish... Let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let let not one go unworn and unprayed for. Because there was a church that says get a glimpse of his majesty. You don't have to die lost. You don't have to go to hell. You can find grace and mercy of a majestic Savior. Have we seen him? Have we caught a glimpse of his majesty? Do we long for his word or do we come to the house of God and yawn as the word of God is being spoken? Are we so enticed and entertained by media that the word of God can no longer pierce our hearts and change our lives? I told God the other day, if I'm not preaching, I want to sit on the edge of my seat waiting on the word of God to go forth. I want there to be such a hunger for the word of God that it's never filled. That every time bread is being broken, the word of God, that I'm ready to be fed. God, I want to long for your word like I long for my next meal, God. That's what I want. Because the psalmist said this in Psalms 29 and 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full Majesty, and every time the word is preached, somebody is giving us a glimpse of His Majesty. Whether they stutter, whether they whether they they're passionate, whether they just get up here and are mundane or monotone or whatever, whether it's hard to do that and preach the word of God, I don't understand that. I can't help but to be passionate when I'm sharing the majestic majestic nature of this Almighty, wonderful God. But here's the fact of the matter. The Word of God is powerful. It is God-breathed. And when you read it, His Spirit begins to breathe life into dead situations. And God uses men and women to speak His Word. And He uses you to speak His Word. Are you ready? I'm going to give you a word. You can speak to mountains and you can watch them move. Because the word of God is alive in us. You can speak a word of encouragement to the person who is down. You can give a word of guidance and direction. If you just catch a glimpse of his majesty, then his word will become alive in your life. It won't won't no longer just be a book sitting on a shelf. I have told you a thousand times this book was just a book that I preached. Until I faced a situation that I could do nothing about in my flesh. I heard people talk about this word, oh, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can do anything you need it to do. It's spirit and life. It's god breathed. But until you get into a situation to where your natural voice won't change the circumstances... And you need a word from a king that is greater than any king that's ever lived, the Lord of lords. You'll break out that word, and you'll let it begin to speak to mounds in your life. You'll let it begin to speak to addiction. You'll let it begin to speak to disease and sickness. Because where the word of the king is, there is power and majesty. If I can just catch a glimpse of his majesty. And I want to help others get a glimpse. Once I catch a glimpse, I want to help others get a glimpse. Have you ever been in a powerful service where his presence was so overwhelming like it was a little while ago and you couldn't even hardly stand? You had to kneel, clap, run, smile. I was up here grabbing Kleenexes one minute. I was smiling the next while ago. What is going on? God, your presence got my emotions all over the place. You know what it is? When the king shows up, you don't know what to do. I guarantee you, let somebody famous show up in this building. Y'all going to go crazy. But today, the most famous of them all has showed up in our midst. And I just can't contain myself today. Why do y'all clap and run and dance and shout? Because when we're in the presence of a majesty of this majestic king, we can't help but to tell him, God, we're so honored. God, we're so thankful. God, we're so grateful. You know, we don't deserve any of this. uh, But you chose to give us your power. I love Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 shows how powerful the presence of God is. Isaiah 6 and verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah sets the context, explaining that his encounter with God took place in the year that King Uzziah died. And if you study about King Uzziah, he was a beloved and trusted king. And after he died, Israel fell into a season of chaos and turmoil and desperation without his popular popular leader. So it would have been logical for Isaiah to begin his prophecy with something dramatically negative. He could have said in the lowest year of our nation when COVID-19 broke out and gas prices were through the roof. Thank you, Uncle Joe. Sick, there's a new variant of COVID. Anybody heard that? In a year where chaos is breaking out, in a year where a nation is divided, in a year where hate is running rampant, in a year where people can't seem to get past their own opinions and 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 just love people with the love of Christ. In a year that, that all hope has been lost. But instead instead, instead of Isaiah the prophet writing that, he said, In the year that king Uzziah died, you know what he said? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was exalted and seated on a throne, and his train, the train of his robe filled the temple. You know what Isaiah said? It, it's not good right now, but the king is still on his throne, and his train still fills the temple. What he was saying was, is this king, King Uzziah was good, but he's not the king of kings. In this process, in this process of God showing him who was in charge, he he proves to Isaiah that I can reach beyond the realm of human limitation and I can open the door to the supernatural and what we can't do, God was telling Isaiah what you can't do and what Uzziah couldn't do, I can do. I can bring you through. I can help you. I can lead you. I can be there for you. I can be your comforter. I can be your deliverer. I can be your healer. I can be your way maker. I can be the one that helps, helps bring you to a place of comfort and peace. He said he robes himself in majesty and is armed with strength strength and the world stands firm and cannot be shaken and he loves us despite our imperfections he's majestic Isaiah didn't just read about God or hear others talk about God he saw the Lord he caught a glimpse of his majesty he experienced God's presence in a unique unique way and if we're going to ask God to use us then we've got to catch a glimpse of his majesty Isaiah saw the Lord, and in God's presence, Isaiah was stunned. He was shaken. He was astounded. God was high and lifted up no matter what was going on around them. God was on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The imagery is taken from the practice of earthly kings, the great monarchs of Egypt and Assyria, they owned these elaborate thrones. They, they, they made sure their thrones were elaborate. They were over the top to show how powerful they were. And then they wore these flowing robes. I'm thinking about getting me one. And the longer the robe was, the more power the king was supposed to have. And as the king defeated the camp of another king, you know what he would do? He would... He would go and he would cut off the defeated king's train and he would sew it onto his train. And the longer the train of the king got, the more power he possessed. And eventually this train became longer and more glorious as as he was the obvious victor from many battles. Can I tell you what God was showing Isaiah is I've already won the victory over depression. I've already conquered death, hell, and the grave before Jesus ever showed up. My train fills the temple. I'm majestic like none other the prophet did his best to use human words to describe heavenly creatures encircling God And praising his name. I loved it. Isaiah said, look, his train fills the temple. He's victorious already. Jesus hasn't even showed up yet. And he's already got a plan that's going to make him victorious. He's already stripping the enemy of every wile and method that he has to destroy humanity. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah says, look, there was all these angelic beings encircling God. And Isaiah called them seraphims, angelic, fiery beings with six wings surrounding the Lord God because of the holiness of the Lord. And these heavenly beings covered their faces with two of their wings to shield themselves from the glory of the Most High God. Now watch this. The angelic beings couldn't catch a glimpse of His majesty. They had to cover their face. But a prophet who said, woe is me, I'm undone. God allowed him to catch a glimpse of His majesty. Angelic beings are covering their face from the, from the glory of God of the Most High. And these worshipers cried out to each other with loud voices shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And some of you may say, why did they say it three times? The triple repetition of holy was for emphasis that God is God all by Himself. If you said something in threes, that meant, that, that meant it was complete. And what they were saying was that God is separate and distinct. He is complete within himself. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. He is perfect, pure, and righteous. God's holiness is the centerpiece of his character, and all of his other attributes flow from it. His wrath is against sin. Then is a holy wrath. His sovereignty over the universe is a holy sovereignty. His love for the world is a holy love. If God is anything, he is holy, holy, holy. And the prophets saw a God who rules over all the situations of life. Majesty, majesty, majesty. And Isaiah would go on to write that their voices boomed so loud that the doorposts began to shake and the temple began to tremble. And the glory of God filled the temple like smoke. And Isaiah was left in awe. Let me ask us a question today. When was the last time that we had an encounter like Isaiah had? Where we have to fight back against our own self and say, you're not going to keep me out of the presence of majesty. And you hear me today, I've come to preach to somebody and I won't be much longer. We've got to fight back against this, this anti-Christ culture that we live in that is numbing us to the presence of God. And making us naive to his power. Look around. Our culture treats God casually, trivially, and even fictionally. Familiar with popular perceptions of him, but unaware of his majesty. Many people take God for granted. The enemy can't remove the presence of God. So, so what he does is he puts information in our lives that, that causes us not to acknowledge the presence of God. Because it doesn't make sense to logic. And to some, he's the man of stairs. Or the big guy in the sky. But these pictures of God don't begin to come close to showing the Lord the respect, glory, and honor he deserves. Can I, can I say this and not be rude? Don't use his name in vain. Don't say, oh my. Say, oh my gosh. Because that name, it's powerful. And if we ever catch a true vision of God in his purest essence, I promise you, we will never refer to him like a pal that we have down the road. Let me give you a word today. God is too mighty to be disrespected. He's too holy to treat casually. He's too good to speak to with an ungrateful familiarity. He is too majestic to casually take for granted. He is my Savior. He is my stronghold. He's the one who blots out our sins and the one who comforts me when I'm hurt. Think about it. The king of the universe is my advocate. And the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. And we behold, beheld his glory full of grace and truth. His majesty, all the splendor of heaven revealed in a human body. God came near. His majesty was seen. A human body housing divinity, holiness and earthliness intertwined. The The one who is older than time and greater than death shows up in the form of a baby in a manger. Heaven touched the earth. And as a result, earth can know heaven now. The one who spoke with such thunderous authority and love with such childlike humility who went against the pomp of religion dissipating the fog of theology and lifting the dense curtain of controversy and opinion all the while erasing our blinding errors and egotism. This is no run-of-the-mill Messiah. His story was extraordinary. He called himself divine yet made himself available to you and I. He is my confidence when I'm unsure. He is my strength when I'm weak. He is my helper, my hiding place, my hope and my light. He is my refuge in time of trouble, my song and my strong deliverer. He is my king. And I want to catch a glimpse of his majesty to that. Because those who, when you open this word, those who caught a glimpse of his majesty were never the same. My Lord and my God, cried doubting Thomas. I've seen the Lord, exclaimed Mary Magdalene. We have seen his glory, declared John. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked, rejoiced, the two Emmaus-bound disciples? Yet Simon Peter said it best. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And understand what Simon Peter meant by eyewitnesses of his majesty. You have to go back to the beautiful story in the Gospels where Jesus asked his inner circle, Simon Peter, James, and John, to go with him up the mount, probably Mount Hermon. Jesus was trying to get their attention a lot of times Jesus would take his followers aside for a time of teaching and prayer. Not, not all 12, but these three were, were, were selected by God because they, wanted, they, they, they had a desire to know him. And he wanted to show them a glimpse of his majesty. Now don't miss the point. If you want to get a glimpse of his majesty, you must be willing to shout out. You've got to be willing to say, I want to see it. And you've got to be willing to shut out the distractions and make the sacrificial climb into his presence that a lot of people will not make. Because nine other disciples wasn't willing to make the climb, but three said, I'll go where you go. Let me just see a glimpse of your majesty. I'm talking about a time of prayer. I'm talking about a time. I'm talking about Sunday church. This is good, man. It's been good in here. But I'm talking about Monday and Tuesday where you make the climb into his presence. To where you get your word out and you pray it, and you have meditation time in his presence and you intercede. And some of your greatest God moments will happen when you are tired but available. To where you climb into his presence. Because solitude is a healthy discipline, isolation is a symptom of emotional depletion. We become isolated when we don't spend time with him. In 2006, the Federal Aviation Administration grounded all DC-10s because on one flight, the engine fell off, resulting in the death of 213 passengers. Come to find out, this unthinkable flaw didn't take place overnight. It was the result of successive times of ignored maintenance. The wheels fell off because somebody didn't take the time to make sure they were maintained. And 213 passengers lost their life because somebody refused to check the wheels on the plane. Somebody refused to make sure, make sure that the plane was intact so they can carry 213 passengers. And I'm seeing a lot of Christians whose wheels are falling off because they want to come to church and enjoy his presence. But they really don't want a glimpse of his majesty inadequacy, discouragement, and anger instead of catching a glimpse of Him. But I love what Paul said in Philippians 4, 4-7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice and let your gentleness be evident. To all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It was the psalmist that said this, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Let me suggest to you that a part of prayer is thinking deeply about something in the presence of God. It's not just always interceding or always, always wanting to hear my voice in prayer. Some people prayed to hear their own voice. God, let me see how much I can pray and hear my new prayer is thinking about something in the presence of God. It's closing your eyes and, and telling him, my mind is a mess right now. And I'm just going to get in your presence, catch a glimpse of your majesty. And I'm just going to think about all these things going on in my life. But I'm going to think about it in your presence. It had it been a roller coaster following Jesus, it would have been easy for Peter, James, and John to sit this journey out. But they knew something special was about to happen. They were exhausted when they arrived at the peak of the mountain. But something special all of a sudden begins to show up. The countenance of Jesus begins to change as his garments and face were now glistening like the noonday sun. There he was transfigured before them. A demonstration of his divine nature and manifestation of his glory. They see it for the first time. No longer is he just a carpenter or a prophet our great teacher, this is the express image of Almighty God. And, when, and, and and while they're looking at him, two men appear before Jesus who had been gone from earth for a long time. Elijah and Moses, I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been sitting on that mountain and all of a sudden Jesus is transfigured. His glory is manifested. He's shining. And all of a sudden Elijah and Moses shows up. I would have been like, yes, sir. I can't wait to tell the other nine about this. Hey, y'all bunch of lazy bums. Y'all stayed at the bottom of the mountain. (laughs) We went up the mountain. And while we were on that mountain, we saw a side of Jesus that we've never witnessed before. We called a glimpse of his majesty. And the apostles are understandably excited. Notice what Peter says. He says, Lord. If it is good for us to be here, if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said, God, let's just live here. Jesus, let's just live on this mountain. Something great has happened here. We're going to build you a house. We're going to build Elijah a house, and we're going to build Moses a house. And me, me, me. James and John, we're just going to live on this mountain with you. We're just going to come. We're going to eat your groceries. We're going to live off the bread of life. We're going we're to we're eat up your electricity bill. We're just going to live off you, Moses and Elijah. You see, they missed the purpose of the encounter at first. It wasn't just for them. But Jesus allowed them to catch a glimpse of his majesty in order to share it with others after the resurrection. Some of us think that his glory is just for us. It's not. His glory is for us to go tell somebody else. And guys, I told you when I was a kid, the church that I went to was right down the road from a gas station that had hamburgers. And at that time, we had 10 a.m. morning service and 6 p.m. night service. And I remember the power of God would be so strong in there that I didn't even want to go home. So I asked my mom and I asked the pastor, can I just stay here all day? And I would stay in that house of God all day. And in between those services, I'd walk down to the hamburger place and that little gas station with some delicious hamburgers. And I would get me a double patty hamburger with bacon and cheese and lettuce and tomato and mustard and mayonnaise with a side of fries and a large cold drink to go with it. And I would eat my hamburger, but that wasn't the thrill of the day. The thrill of the day was, can I get back to the house of God? Because I want to catch a glimpse of his majesty. And now I'm 39 and two weeks will be 40 years old. And what I didn't realize, I know I'm getting old, right? What I didn't realize then, that I realize now, this being in that atmosphere was powerful and it was good. And it was the same thing that Simon, Peter, James, and John experienced on the mountain. But God showing me his glory wasn't just for me to have a moment. It was for me to go out and live a lifestyle that points everybody else to his majesty. Somebody's got to hear me today. I know you want to be here. But his majesty goes everywhere you go. And he lets us experience this so we can show everybody else. Matthew 17, 5 through 8, and while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him, and when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, they were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, he said, don't be afraid, and when they looked at him, They didn't see anyone else. No longer was it about Elijah and Moses. No longer was it about just a mountaintop experience. When they looked up, they only saw majesty. Their focus was only on Jesus. It wasn't on the singers. It wasn't on the preacher. It wasn't on the creeders. It was on the one that was getting ready to wash out their sins. And it was in that moment as musicians come. They realized that Jesus designed this encounter to be something they would never forget. Sure, they had been with Jesus for a long time, and sure, it was Simon Peter that declared he is the son of God, God in the flesh. Yet this was the time, it was this moment that their life was forever changed, a scene that would be burned in their minds long after Jesus had risen from the dead. John might have been referring to this event of seeing Jesus transfigured when he wrote To fellow Christians in 1 John 1 and 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And then we turn to Simon Peter who says we witnessed his majesty. His majesty. To say these words means that there is royalty in our midst. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords Who is king like none other. The one who demanded purity yet stood for the rights of a repentant sinner. And sometimes would even stand in the midst of people that others thought he shouldn't even be around. And something happens to a person who catches a glimpse of his majesty. One glimpse of the king. Not religion. Because there is a such thing as pure religion. But if you fall in love with Pentecost, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, then you're missing the majesty of the king. Listen, if we didn't have all these instruments and all we had was a guitar and me and Brother William singing a duet, I still should be moved when majesty walks into the building. I want you to love the river but I don't want you to love it for the wrong reasons I want you to love it because majesty shows up every Sunday and when I'm consumed with majesty being a spectator will no longer be an option junk religion will no longer suffice sensation seeking is needless Because once you've caught a glimpse of Him, you'll only want more and more and more. And for the past few weeks, I've been lost in one magnificent obsession. I want to get close enough to witness His majesty. I want to see all that God will permit me to see, knowing full well that I've not seen all, nor will I see all that there is to see on the other side of the sun. I want to see the majesty of the King of Kings. I want to see what Simon, Peter, James, and John seen. I want to see what they experienced in the upper room. I want to see see the one that the psalmist wrote about. How majestic is your name in all the earth? The I am that I am. The one that Jesus showed up and said, I am. The one that said, I am that I am. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who makes bread happen. That's what he was saying. I don't need any material. I don't need any ingredients. When he said I'm the light of the world, he means I am the one who makes light appear in your dark world. And when Jesus said, I am, he was saying that everything God is now resides in me. I've given, I've given him a name. The name of Jesus that's above every other name. It's the only name, saving name in the universe, Jesus. It's the only name that possesses all power in heaven and earth. It is the most majestic name known to humanity. The name by which sins are washed away in baptism. The name by which demons are dispelled. The name by which sickness flees, walls crumble, and addictions are loosened. That name, that name Jesus, is more than a name that needs to be spoken at Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas, that's great. But the name is more powerful than just a holiday name. This is the name that when spoken calls all of the seen and the unseen world to stand at attention. When I speak his name, doors open, for he is the door. When I speak his name, the way becomes clear because he is the way. When I speak his name, deception leaves because he is the truth. And deception can't stand in the presence of truth. When I say Jesus, death's got to flee because he's the resurrection and the life. You know why? Because his train fills the temple. Jesus' name is big enough to change anybody's life. There is no sin too great for His grace. There is no habit too big for His healing. There is no label too strong for His love. Let me say it again. I want you to catch a glimpse of His Majesty. His name is still calling people out and bringing them into His kingdom. And His power. Psalms ninety-three and one. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. And the Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. himself. The world also established that it cannot be moved. God has clothed himself with majesty and power. Think about that. Think about what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. They said, we are eyewitnesses. We saw who he really is. We saw what the psalmist wrote about. That he has clothed himself in majesty and power. Their lives were forever changed because they saw him for who he really is. Not powerless, but powerful, not anemic, but almighty. He transformed them for they saw him. They sensed that beyond the flesh and blood was an infinite and eternal God. That his anointing, his power, his glory more than they could have imagined. I can't make you see it today. All I can do is tell you about how. I'm preaching this for a reason because this week I read about a church with several thousand members where the preacher preached for an entire year on politics. Listen, I'm pro-life. I am pro-life. If you're a Christian, you should be pro-life. Do I need to say that again? You want to read what the spirit of the Antichrist is really about? Go read about how many times they killed babies in the Bible. Trying to destroy the lineage of the Messiah. Pro-life. I keep up with politics. I vote. But my job isn't to get up here and to preach politics for a year. You know what the board came to this pastor and said? Several thousand members. They came to him and said, Will you stop talking about politics and will you preach on Jesus? Because the Bible says in the last days, the Lord's majesty will appear again. And there will be a great outpouring on all flesh. So I didn't come to tell you about COVID-19 today. I didn't come to tell you about if you're Democrat or Republican. I didn't come to preach on any of that today. I didn't come to talk to you about who's a better president. But I've come to tell you there's one that sits on the throne and he's high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. He's never changed. And he wants to help people. as we stand. I'm going to say this and I'm going to leave it alone. If you put your faith in any human figure, you're going to be let down. If your faith was in President Donald Trump or if your faith is in President Joe Biden, get ready to be let down. If your faith is in me, I want you to believe in me. I want you to love me. But if you're looking at me and you're trying to call me majesty, you better get out of here. I walk the best that I can walk for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. King of kings and the Lord of lords. I do the best I can to preach his gospel. But I'm not majesty. I can't change anybody. But I'm connected to one who can. This closing story may be a little long, but I feel like it's necessary because it explains what I want to happen in this place. My wife shared it with me. It's in a book called God Chasers. And the author said this. He said, a longtime friend of mine who pastored a church in Houston, Texas, called me and asked me to preach. He said, I was desperate for a move of God. I just wasn't content anymore to know about Jesus. I wanted to catch a glimpse of his majesty. And when the pastor called, he said, I just sensed that there was something awaiting me there. Little did we know that we were approaching a divine appointment. There had been, there had to be more. And when he called, I felt the more calling to me. I was desperate for a God encounter of the closest kind. I went, and it was a good service. He said, but I didn't think anything else about it. He said, I returned home, and he said, I was in my kitchen cooking the pastor from Texas called me and said, can you come back? Can you come preach? He said, so I went. The second Sunday was even more intense. No one wanted to leave the building. After the Sunday night service, the pastor looked at me and said, what should we do? We've been waiting on a move of God like this. He said, I looked at the pastor and said, we need to have a Monday night prayer meeting. No agenda, no music, no preacher, just a Monday night encounter with majesty. He said that Monday night, 400 people showed up to pray. He said, I I told the pastor, he said, let's continue to gauge the hunger of these people. So we went into a, a third Sunday of revival. The church had two services, one at 830 and one at 11. And he said, when I returned for the third weekend, while I was in the hotel, I sensed a heavy anointing of some kind. A brooding of the spirit. And I literally wept and trembled in my room. And he said the following morning we walked into the building for the 8.30 a.m. service. Expecting to see the usual early morning first service happy sleepy crowd. He said I thought the worship would be low key. But as I walked to sit down on the front row that morning. The presence of God was already in the building. It was so thick. He said you could barely even breathe. Musicians were clearly struggling to continue their ministry. Their tears got in the way. Music became more difficult to play. Finally, the presence of God hovered so strongly that they couldn't sing or play any longer. They just crumpled on the ground and began to cry and weep and pray. The atmosphere reminded me of the passage in Isaiah 6. He said, in the midst of this, all this is going on, he said, people's falling out. He said, the pastor looks at me and said, are you ready? He said, I looked back at the pastor and said, I ain't going up to the pulpit. He said, I'm afraid. He said, I'm afraid if I go up to that pulpit, the presence of God is so strong, he might strike me down. So the pastor said, well, I feel like I got a word. And the pastor walks up with his Bible. He sits it on the pulpit and he opens the second Chronicles 7 and 14. And he said this, he stepped to the pulpit and said, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. When he closed his Bible, he gripped the edges of the pulpit with trembling hands and said the word of the Lord to us is to stop seeking his benefits and to start seeking his face in that instant the author said I heard what sounded like a thunderclap echo through the building and the pastor was literally picked up and thrown backwards about 10 feet he said when he was thrown backwards from the pulpit about 10 feet the pulpit fell forward and the beautiful flower arrangement position in front of it fell to the ground but by the time the pulpit had hit the ground it was split in two And at that instant, the tangible terror of the presence of God filled that room. People began to weep and wail. He said, I quickly stepped to the microphone and said, in case you aren't aware of it, God has just moved into this place. The pastor is fine. He was laid out on the platform for two and a half hours. Finally, some ushers went and got him and carried him to his office. It was like a bomb of the presence of God went off into that building. He said, the the author said, I said again, if you're not where you need to be, it's a good time to get right with God. He said, I've never seen an altar call like it. People were climbing over pews and climbing over one another just to get to the altar to catch a glimpse of his majesty. He said, people that are usually well-pressed and put together was tearing their tie off and taking their suit coat off and they were doing whatever they could to get to the presence of God. He said when it was time for the 11 a.m. service, he realized that nobody had left the building from the 8.30 service. The people were still on their faces, and even though there, were hardly any, there was hardly any music being played at that point, worship was rampant and uninhibited. Grown men were dancing in the Spirit. Children were weeping in repentance. People were on their faces, on their feet, on their knees in His presence because they didn't know what to do when they caught a glimpse of His majesty. So much of the presence... And the power of God there that people begin to feel an urgent need to be baptized. He said, I watched people walk through the doors. He said, people that were passing the church started pulling into an open ball field that was next to the church. They said they were just driving by and the presence of God began to pull them into the parking lot. And they were just coming into the building and running to the altar or falling out in in the aisles just to catch a glimpse of his majesty. He said, people started lining up around the building to be baptized. He said, I was the evangelist. I didn't want to overstep my boundaries, so I sent one of the young ministers to the pastor's office to ask him, hey, what do you want to do with these people that want to get baptized? He said, said, 40 minutes went by, the young man didn't come back, so I sent another young man to the pastor's office. 20 minutes went by, that young man didn't didn't come back. He said, so I got with one one of the more experienced ministers. I said, hey, can you go find the pastor? I sent two people to go find him, and they haven't came back. He said, can you go find him? Because I need to know, are we going to baptize these people? He said, all of a sudden, that assistant pastor came back. And this is what he said. He said, I stuck my head in the pastor's office. He said, but to my shock, the pastor was still lying face down on the ground sprawled on the floor, weeping and repenting before God and interceding for lost souls. He said, the two men that you sent, they and they're on the ground too, on their face, weeping and crying and interceding for the lost. And this assistant pastor shook his head and said, if I would have went into that office, I would be on the floor right now in the presence of God, weeping, repenting and interceding for lost souls. He said, so I just came back to tell you, I didn't talk to the pastor, but I think it's okay if we baptize people. He said, so we begin to baptize people. He said, we baptized people for hours upon hours upon hours. People kept coming in, and we just kept baptizing people. He said, people kept driving up and coming in, and we kept baptizing people. He said, he said everybody was falling on their face. He said, that Sunday 830 service continued to 1 a.m. Monday morning. He said, we didn't even have to make an announcement. Everybody knew Monday night we have a revival. He said, for seven nights a week, for five weeks, we had church to where nobody was scheduled to preach and nobody was scheduled to sing. But people just caught a glimpse of his glory. People were just walking in. People were coming in and just saying, hey, I feel something. I heard y'all caught a glimpse of his majesty. And we want to experience what y'all are experiencing this is what God spoke to me to speak to the river today. While all that was happening during worship, God said, I'm giving you a taste of what I want to do here. He said, I want to pour out my spirit. He said, but I refuse to pour out my spirit where there's no hunger. Because when you're hungry, that means you're dissatisfied with the way things have been. And you want more of his majesty. And the bottom line is that people are sick of church because the church has gave them false advertisement. We tell them about a higher power. We tell them about a supernatural anointing. We tell them about the Holy Spirit. And then people show up and we start pointing to ourselves. No, ma'am, no, sir. Today I'm pointing to his majesty. I can't do anything, but there is his majesty. We're going down.